Our Old Testament reading this morning is from Exodus chapter 14, verses 15 through 20. And uh, we are still just right on the edge. The people have made it out of Egypt, but they're still not free from Egypt. This is the uh, Israelites who had been slaves in Egypt, and God had raised up Moses as the deliverer to bring them out of Egypt. And so they have uh, celebrated the Passover meal, and they have come out of Egypt. But now they are trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's armies when Pharaoh had changed his mind and decided, no, you can't go after all. And so he's coming after them. And so people have been uh, crying out and saying, maybe it would have been better if we just stayed in Egypt. But no. Uh, This is Exodus 14, verses 15 through 20. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you again for this day that you have made. And God, we thank you for your word, which you have given to us. Or we ask that this morning you would give us ears to hear. And give us ears to hear your word. God, we ask that you would, as the hymn says, tune our hearts to your grace. God, we ask that you would give us minds that are uh, focused, awake and alert. And God, we ask that you would give us hearts that are ready to receive your word into our lives. God, that by your word and by your spirit, we would be changed even more today into the people that you have created us to be in relationship with you through Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 15. Then the Lord said to Moses, why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff and stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the water so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. I will harden the hearts of the Egyptians so that they will go in after them, and I will gain glory through Pharaoh and all his army, through his chariots and his horsemen. The Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I gain glory through Pharaoh, his chariots, and his horsemen. And the angel of God, who had been traveling in front of Israel's army, withdrew and went behind them. The pillar of cloud also moved from in front and stood behind them coming between the armies of Egypt and Israel. Throughout the night, the cloud brought darkness to the one side and light to the other side, so neither went near the other all night long. Oh, we're just right on the edge. Next week, next week. Turning then to our gospel reading, uh, the book of Mark, chapter 15, starting in verse 33, and going through the end of the chapter, verse 47. Today is uh, Palm Sunday, but it is also Passion Sunday. And so it is when we talk about uh, Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, but it's also when we talk about uh, Jesus's crucifixion. This is what we are reading in Mark 15. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. 
the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph bought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Turning into our sermon text uh, this morning, this is from Revelation chapter 21, verses 9 through 27. And um, this is really getting near the end of the whole Bible, and it's... uh, such an amazing conclusion to the entire Bible. As we have been, uh, if you go through all the way from Genesis to the end, there are things that um, have been kind of set in motion, these things that have been put in place earlier on, much, much earlier on, that uh, have all their kind of payoff as you get to the end of the book of Revelation, as you see how it's all coming together. And, uh, and it's one of those things where you see in if you ever watch a movie like it's something that's really well done and there are all these things that have been happening along the way and and problems that have come in and you're like there's no way you're like you're looking at the time you know how long the movie is and you're like there's only 15 more minutes they can't possibly wrap it all up it's not going to happen and if you've seen uh, a really frustrating one (laughs) a lot of times you watch these um, movies and you get to the end and you're like I still have questions. (laughs) You did not cover everything. There were things that you set up and then there was no payoff. There was nothing at the end of that. Um, But then there are others that are just so good and so satisfying where you've got all these, like, how in the world is this going to happen? And then it all just at the very end, it comes together and you go, oh my goodness. And it's such a good, satisfying way. That's what we have at the end of Revelation. Is there are things that have been uh, started from all the way back in the early chapters of Genesis that then we keep getting hints along the way and going, but how? But what is that going to be like? How is this going to happen? And then you get to the very end of the book of Revelation and you're seeing, oh, oh, now I see. Now, um, one of the ways this is done, though, is in this apocalyptic kind of language, not in the way that we talk about uh, the apocalypse today, but in Uh, the way that that was talked about before, just in this revealing and this way that God would reveal things to people in uh, sort of visionary terms. And so we look through the Bible and we see all these dreams that people have and the way in which uh, the dreams get interpreted. And so you see things like um, uh, (laughs) Nebuchadnezzar having a dream of a giant statue made of different elements. And then you see this this rock that's not cut from human hands and it comes and it smashes the statue and then the rock itself grows into a mountain that covers the earth and you're like well that's 
weird. But <laughs> if you've ever had a dream, you know dreams are weird. <laughs> and it's kind of given with this sort of dreamlike logic that, it, yeah, it, that all kind of works and makes sense in a dream sense. And you know what it um, represents. And you know, Daniel tells him this is, has to do not with statues, not with mountains. This has to do with kingdoms. And you have the kingdoms of this world that are going to be replaced by the kingdom of God who will uh, throw all those down, and that will be the kingdom that lasts forever. And you go, oh, well, that makes total sense. And you don't have people going around looking for statues or looking for rocks not cut by human hands to see if they It's not what it's about. And the same kind of thing, when we get to uh, the book of Revelation, uh, if, if you are familiar with how dreams work, if you're familiar with how political cartoons work, <laughs> you're well-suited to um, being able to read and understand what's going on in the book of Revelation if you also have been through the other 65 books of the Bible because it's just drawing so much on all of that. And that's where we get uh, these kind of payoffs at the very, very end. And we have uh, things to look forward to. We saw in uh, verse 1 of, um, of chapter 21 where it says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth, earth had uh, First heaven, first earth had passed away, no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And all of this then is leading us into our passage for today, which goes in, uh, starting in verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the, in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and as high as it is long. The angel measured the wall using human measurement, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was of gold, as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Here we have in this visionary language this depiction of what is coming. And um, interestingly, I saw, um, I saw this quote. I don't know. I wish I knew where it came from or who said it. But it says, uh, 
Earth is preparing for a war. Heaven is preparing for a wedding. Think about that. Earth is preparing for a war. Heaven is preparing for a wedding. And that is exactly what we have seen as we've gone through uh, Revelation to this point. We have seen, you know, multiple times that this <laughs> talks about like the kings of the earth all getting together and they're like, we're going to go and we're going to fight against God and we're going to give him everything we've got and come on, rally the troops. Here we go. Let's fight against God, preparing for a war against God where maybe they can just kick him out of this universe he's created once and for all. And then what we see is there is no battle. That with the word of God, it's done. It's over. And then instead, what we see with, um, with the new creation is this wedding theme. And we see again and again this um, depiction of the bride, the wife of the lamb, uh, in contrast to what we saw earlier of the prostitute, the harlot of Babylon. And so we have these contrasting images. You've got the uh, sort of archetypal Babylon this empire that is um, people-centered in a bad way, <laughs> uh, not looking out to care for people, but looking me. I just want to get mine. And I don't care about anybody else. I don't care about what happens to anybody else. I don't care about what God says. I'm going to do my thing. I'm going to do it my way. And you have a whole empire of that kind of way of being. That's Babylon, depicted by this prostitute, depicted by this absolute image of unfaithfulness. But then contrasted, the city this new Jerusalem being depicted as a bride prepared for the wedding. This picture of faithfulness and, um, and of right relationship and future relationship that goes on and on and on. And so that's what we see here in Revelation 21 is, come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. And you go to look at the bride, and what does the bride look like? You expect, you know, if things are normal kind of language, that what would be marrying a lamb, <laughs> it's probably not a city. <laughs> you imagine going to a wedding, and it's like we have a lamb, and we've got a city, and they're going to, no, that's just weird, right? But in what these images represent, it makes total sense. Jesus being depicted as the lamb, as the one who has uh, given his life, who has sacrificed, laid down his life, uh, as John the Baptist said, when we saw Jesus, look, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then we have the people of God being depicted as this city, the Jerusalem, that, uh, but not Jerusalem the way it was. But in the same way, there's a new heaven and a new earth that's restored to what it's supposed to be kind of creation. We see the same thing with Jerusalem. Think about this. Jerusalem was supposed to be the place. Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where people would come and they would know who God is. They would come to meet with God. The temple is in Jerusalem. And this is where people would come and they would offer their sacrifice. They would offer their prayers. And the priests would be there on behalf of the people uh, representing the people to God and on behalf of God to represent God to the people. This is where God and people were supposed to meet. This is where they're supposed to come together. This is where the relationship that was broken was supposed to be made right. And then we see Jesus coming to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And what happens? The city that's supposed to be the meeting place between God and his people 
rejected him, cast him outside the city, and had him killed. Is that what Jerusalem was supposed to be? No. But now you look at what it is here, and we see this restored Jerusalem where we see that the temple itself kind of is the whole of Jerusalem. This place of people meeting with God is the whole of Jerusalem. Uh, And we see this in all kinds of terminology throughout here, this um, meeting place of God and his people. We see the number 12 all over the place through this passage. 12, um, we can go a little into numbers here, we're not going to do much, but you got uh, three is often associated, a number associated with God. Four is often a number associated with earth. So you got like the heaven and earth sort of thing. Three times four is often a number that is uh, representative of community, specifically community of people and God together. So when you're seeing 12, that's one of the things you're supposed to see is this people and God together. And so you have the 12 tribes of Israel. And what is that supposed to be about? But people meeting with God, that they are going to now be this kingdom of priests to the whole world. Then you see Jesus calling the 12 disciples. Why 12? This new Israel kind of language, but it's this people meeting with God. That's what it's all about. And that's what we see here as the gates and the foundation have the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles on, uh, written on these places as we're supposed to see. This is all the people of God from all time that are together now meeting with and in being present with the God who's present with them. So we see it uh, in these numbers. We also see it in the language of temple that gets expanded out. Did you notice the measurements of the city itself? It's kind of a weird shape, isn't it? It's, it's big. It's a big city. 12, uh, what is it? Uh, 12,000 stadia. It's pretty big. Um, how, how big is that? Uh, footnotes say it's, it's about 1,400 miles. Yeah, okay. That's pretty big. But that's not really the point, is it? <laughs> Just to measure out and see how, how long it is. Because really, here we have another 12. We have another 12 times 1,000. This complete representation of God with his people in this place. But it's, it's even more than that. Because it's not just 12,000 stadia long. It's 12,000 by 12,000 in a square. And then another 12,000 up. 12,000 high. Well, what do you have? What kind of shape are we looking at if it's got the same length, width, and height? It is a cube. <laughs> and there is another famous cube in the, um, in the Old Testament that is also covered in gold. You may know what that is. It's the Holy of Holies. Where do you find the Holy of Holies? In the temple. It's at the heart of the temple. That's what the whole temple is about. You've got the sacrificial system, but it's uh, going, kind of working your way inwards to the Holy of Holies. Where uh, this is kind of that, been described kind of that hot spot of God's presence with his people, in the midst of his people. And now we see, uh, oh, and that, by the way, was about uh, 20 cubits by 20 cubits. So it's like 30 feet by 30 feet by 30 feet. That's the cube of the Holy of Holies. You know how much bigger this is than that? (laughs) I may have done my math wrong, so you can double-check me on this. But the way I figured it 
it comes out to like 15 quadrillion times as big <laughs> in uh, cubic feet as the Holy of Holies. In other words, and again, it's not about the exact size, but what it's about is the Holy of Holies that was this hot spot of God's presence where the high priest could go once a year is now the whole city. It's expanded out, and it's not just like a city. It's like a huge, huge city where people are uh, present with God. God is present with them in a way that we have not seen since the Garden of Eden. Look at more of that next week. Here's another real neat thing about this. If you uh, go back and look at how the temple was structured, um, you've got the things that are outside, but then you go in, and there's like this inner area and there's lampposts. It's got the seven lamps on the lamppost. Um, more like a candle thing. Don't don't think like street light. But <laughs> um, but on this lamppost, you, that's what's giving light in there. And why do you have to have that? But because you're you're inside. It's it's dark in there. And then you go through, and there's another uh, thick curtain that separates that room from the holy of holies. And if you go in there, how many lamps are in there? Zero. You're like, well, how is there no light in the Holy of Holies? How's the high priest supposed to be able to see what they do? Well, we have a hint (laughs) right here uh, where it says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And so we see in this depiction of, uh, of the city that the whole thing has become the temple, that God and the Lamb are the temple, that are the city. This is where people dwell in right relationship with God and with each other and with the whole of the new creation. And then it says that it is God who gives it the light. It's his, his glory makes it to where we don't even need the sun and the moon. I didn't say they're not going to be there. Just, we don't need them. <laughs> that his Light, the light of his glory, is what we see by. This um, is an amazing depiction of what is coming. But it comes also with two other aspects that we need to keep in mind. One is the warning at the very end, where it says, Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is supposed to be, the whole book is supposed to be this uh, kind of wake-up call to here's the way things are. Here's the way that it's actually going to be and live in light of that now, which means if you know this is what's coming, then uh, you know we, it's the kind of thing you have to look forward to on the one hand, unless you have chosen to reject it, in which case it's not we have to look forward to. And so this is that that warning, that exhortation again to persevere, that though there will be a lot of other words in this world that try to say other things, there will be a lot of other forces that try to push you off this path. The way of Jesus, the way of the Lamb, the way of the cross, that's what leads to this, uh, this wedding and this time of being together forever uh, with God and with his people.
There's a lot more in this particular passage as far as things that represent things and how this all comes together. And uh, we've got resources on our website if you want to look at uh, more detail that way. But, um, but I think you get the point. I showed you this last week. I still didn't this week make a slide of it, so you just have to look at it on here. And looking at the different ways that we have, uh, that we might be living now in relationship with God. And this is the last point. When, um, when Jesus came into Jerusalem and people are crying out, save us, please. He knew that that's what he was going to do, but he also knew what that was going to look like. He knew he was headed not to a throne, but to a cross and then to a throne. And with that in mind, do you think that may have had an impact on how he walked through that particular week, knowing that on Friday he's going to the cross? I think so. And you read the things that he does that week, and everyone is just heavy with meaning. This is the um, little illustration of how people tend to live their lives, either uh, life over God as though... They're the ones in charge, and if he exists, they still get to run the show. Life under God, where it's all about the rules and not about a relationship. There's a life from God. It's just about what we can get from him. has nothing to do with a relationship uh, with him. And then uh, life for God, where it's just trying to do so much for him that then maybe he'd be pleased with that. But there's actually no relationship there. But really what the Bible has been about from beginning to end is his life with God. That's what it was always supposed to be about. That's what Jesus has come to restore is this right relationship that we can have with God now. And then you go all the way to the end, and that's, like, that's where we're headed, this life with God that goes on forever. And so uh, and so if this is where what we're looking at, it, this is what's coming, this is where we're headed, a whole of history is headed to this uh, reunion between heaven and earth, between God and his people. Do you think maybe that ought to change how we're living day to day now? That we would live in light of that now? That the way that we would live would be um, in relationship with God through Jesus? Earth is preparing for a war. And there is certainly spiritual warfare along our way but we're not preparing for a war. We are preparing for a wedding. And so let's not get distracted. Let's not lose our way, but continue to follow uh, the way of the lamb, continue to follow, see by his light, follow the way of the cross, laying down our lives for the good of others as we prepare for the ultimate wedding. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.